Good morning, everyone. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm director of the Institute for Government. Very warm welcome, including to those of you who've been up all night. This was one of the nights when the lights in this building uh, burned all night. I want to just say a couple of things before this excellent panel begins this discussion. This report really matters to us. I can't tell you how many conversations this question of staff turnover in the civil service comes into. It comes into most discussions where of, of when something has gone wrong. We mentioned universal credit in this report, but there are many others. It comes into all kinds of discussions about incentives in the civil service, not just why people go into it, but how to give someone who is very, very good a different professional career from someone who isn't. It comes into all kinds of analysis of how ministers work with the civil service. I'll say one other thing. We have with our chief economist, Gemma Tetlow, gone to some effort to try to put a figure on what this is costing. And we have to reach right into uh, our analysis in the private sector. This is not a well-studied area. We've come up with a figure. But what is also clear to us is that this understates the problem. When you look at instances where something has gone very wrong, for example, the rollout of universal credit, I don't mean the policy, I mean the rollout of it, and you look at why that has happened and staff turnover play, has played a significant part in those misjudgments, then uh, it is clear that the real costs of this, the costs of the loss of institutional knowledge as people are transferred so rapidly, uh, that, that that has been absolutely the heart of it and it is very hard to capture in a number exactly what that is. And finally, uh, that Brexit has, while it has had many good effects in helping civil servants move very flexibly, work together across departments, it has also obviously contributed to this problem. On that cheery note, I'm going to hand over to our Director of Research, Emma Norris. Emma. Thank you, and thank you all for joining us here today for this event. As Bronwyn says, the issue of civil service turnover is right at the heart of the Institute's work, and it touches on almost every subject that we look at, so it's something that we care a lot about. So we're delighted to present this new research to you today, looking at what the numbers on civil service turnover look like, what the consequences of that turnover are, and crucially, what can be done about it. And we're delighted to have a fascinating panel here with us today to discuss this. And we've got Lord Freud, um, who was a Minister of State at the Department for Work and Pensions for six years, between 10, 2010 and 2016, so he can really give us the ministerial view on what this level of civil service turnover feels like. Um, Anne Perkins, a journalist, Tim, who was formerly Deputy Political Editor at The Guardian. She's a long-time Whitehall watcher and in 2007 um, hosted a radio series looking in depth at the civil service, so we'll be able to bring some of those insights. Have Lord O'Donnell with us, um, now Chair of Frontier Economics um, and a former Cabinet Secretary who can give us the view from the civil service, talk through what he did to tackle this problem and why it is such a difficult problem for the civil service to tackle. And uh, last but certainly not least, Tom Sass, a senior researcher here at the Institute, one of the authors of this report, who is going to start by talking you through the research. So, Tom, over to you. So, thank you all very much for coming. And um, while we probably can't quite compete with the drama on the floor of the House of Commons, um, we hope to be able to give you some slightly firmer uh, recommendations about what we think is the way out of this particular problem. Um, so this problem that civil servants uh, change roles too frequently is not a new one. In fact, it's, it's one that's been highlighted for more than 50 years. Uh, and it's a problem that really every civil servant is familiar with. But as I'm going to show you, it's a problem that rather than being tackled, has over the last few decades got substantially worse. And as a result, it's a problem that's now compromising the civil service's ability to take on the really big challenges it faces. Uh, from responding to the key policy problems of our times, to delivering major infrastructure projects, to that biggest project of all, Brexit. So all of these tasks require officials who stick in post, develop knowledge, and see things through. But the current workforce model doesn't encourage them to do that. In fact, it does the opposite. So an old problem, but one which urgently needs to be solved. But let's start with the numbers. Officially, the civil service has said that it doesn't have a particular problem with staff turnover. It says it averages 9%, which is comparable to many other organisations. But this only counts people who leave the civil service, not those moving within it. So using new data available for the first time, we found that when you include people moving within the civil service, between departments, the numbers leap to, to 
levels that would make other sectors wince. So eight departments have turnover above 15%. The Treasury loses a fifth to a quarter of its workforce every year. MHCLG lost a quarter of its workforce last year. And, and the Cabinet Office consistently loses up to a third. And that's before counting those changing roles within departments, often to completely new areas of work, for which, unfortunately, there's little data. By contrast, average turnover in a management consultancy, which is a good, a good comparison, is around 12 to 14%. Policy, digital, and project delivery staff move particularly quickly, but the fastest movement of all is among senior staff. And for senior staff, we were able to calculate not only those moving between departments, but also how long they stay in role. So taking that into account, seniors, senior officials stay in post less than two years on average, leaving a complete vacuum of experience at the top of many departments. So four in ten, so in six departments, a new minister will find that four in ten of their senior officials have been in post less than a year. And as you can see, this includes some of the most important governments to the public's concerns. So the Cabinet Office, which deals with national security, work and pensions, housing, education, environment, and the Home Office. Permanent secretaries aren't much better. Um, so they stay in post about three years, closer we found on average to the English football manager than CEOs of top UK companies, and a full five years less than CEOs in America. These numbers are also shocking when compared to other civil services. So in New Zealand, senior staff stay in each department on average 10 years, compared to three in many UK departments. In Australia, key departments like the Treasury have around 12% turnover, which is about half the rate that our Treasury regularly hits. And Brexit, of course, is adding to all of these workforce pressures, encouraging more civil servants to move more quickly, but often in those roles, civil servants aren't staying for long. So, UK civil servants move jobs much more quickly than their equivalent in other countries and in the private sector. But why should we care? Well, we think it matters for four reasons. First, it's very expensive. It's costly and incredibly time-consuming to recruit and train a quarter of your workforce every single year. But the hit to productivity is even greater. So research shows that it takes most of us uh, a year to 18 months to become fully productive in a new job. With most senior officials staying in theirs less than two, they leave just as they're beginning to hit their peak performance. So as Bronwyn alluded to, we estimate that this excessive turnover is wasting between 36 million and 74 million every year in recruitment, training, and lost productivity alone. But this figure only represents a small part, uh, a small part of the overall damage that turnover is causing. So second, it harms policymaking. So most civil service jobs need deep expertise, but it's impossible for officials who change jobs so rapidly to get a sufficient grip of really complicated areas, whether it's welfare reform, renewable energy, or pensions. Ministers in all of these areas have complained that the officials in advising them simply didn't have sufficient knowledge or expertise. So as, as Lord Freud put it when we interviewed him for, for our Ministers Reflect series, I sat there for six and a half years looking at the third, fourth, fifth generation of a person doing a particular area. There's no corporate knowledge retained. That's just a massive vulnerability. So at the individual level, turnover is damaging. But if your whole team is new in, your new in the job, you have an even bigger problem, particularly if you're responsible for a vital area of government work that affects millions of people's lives. That's what happened when more or less the entire homelessness policy team in MHCLG, from subject experts up to experienced directors, left in a space of three years after 2010. So the department's subsequent failure to deliver a co coherent cross-government response uh, to rising numbers of rough sleepers should hardly be surprising. Third, major projects. Uh, and this is where leadership turnover really starts to hurt the exchequer. So government has 133 major projects in its portfolio worth over £420 billion. In 2016, only four out of 73 projects that the NAO looked at had had a single senior responsible owner over that time. Over half had been through three or more. So the Common Agricultural pay Policy Payment Scheme, which is a, a subsidy to farmers, went through four SROs in three years. Universal Credit went through five in a single year. These two projects alone wasted over 200 million in written off IT work. So no other organisation would manage such important and costly projects in such a way. Finally, Treasury turnover 
undermines the way that uh, it oversees government spending and manages key parts of the economy. And I'll take just two examples here. Of 13 members of the welfare spending team at the, at the 2010 spending review, just one was still in place two years later. So that means that 90% of a team responsible for DWP's budget of over 160 billion were new in their role, and our research suggests had little knowledge of what was done previously. Number two, the Treasury had no fewer than seven different directors general in, for financial services between 2001 and the 2008 financial crash. I think that one speaks for itself. Um, so clearly, this is no way to run a modern government. The consequences I've outlined here are not sustainable. Lack of expertise undermines ministers' trust in the, in the advice that officials give them. Failing major projects erode the, the public's trust in the competence of government. And people will rightly start to question whether government is retaining the knowledge that it needs to tackle the problems that they care most about. So what's driving these levels of turnover? Well, most obviously a pay system, which means that civil servants have to move to get a promotion or a pay rise. Managers are unable to reward those who stay in post, while Whitehall's open internal job market means that there are always promotion opportunities elsewhere. This pits departments against each other in a war for talent. And it means that movement of staff is, not driven, by, is driven not by where the government needs skills and experience, but by the understandable desire of officials to advance their career prospects. But the problem goes much deeper. Whitehall has a culture which values generalists who move quickly above those who stay in post, develop expertise, and see through projects. So this means officials feel a pressure to move quickly, even if they're happy and don't want to. One official that we spoke to, who had been in post for 18 months, was told to leave or risk being considered a dud. The civil service needs both generalists and specialists, but while the former stack the top ranks, the latter quickly hit a career ceiling. So our recommendations, which you should all have a copy of on your seat, uh, set out the changes that we think the civil service needs to make if it's to finally address uh, this problem. First, we argue that managers must be able to award pay increases to high performers. This is absolutely standard in most organisations. You should not need to move to get a pay rise. That creates the wrong incentives. Alongside this, however, the culture of the civil service needs to change. It should place much more value on continuity and depth of experience, and departments will need much stronger HR to drive this change, to identify the experience and expertise uh, that they need in their workforce and change recruitment practices, design contracts, and create specific roles to make sure that they get it. This is what successful companies have done. Whitehall must do the same. And finally, permanent secretaries must be made accountable for levels of turnover. If a department suffers debilitating rates of personnel change and as a result lacks the expertise to needs, it needs to do some of its core tasks, its permanent secretary should be called in front of a select committee to explain why. For too long, damaging levels of staff turnover have been too easy to shrug off. So to, to wrap up, this old problem of staff moving too quickly around Whitehall has not only persisted, but it's got worse. It's now compromising the civil service's ability to perform its core tasks not least Brexit. But such an impermanent civil service is not inevitable. It's the consequence of a workforce model that's clearly broken, and the time has come to change it. Thank you. Tom, thank you for a really powerful explanation of what the figures look like and what the costs um, to government and indeed to the public are. Um, Lord Troy, I'm going to come to you first. You spent um, six years in DWP, so no doubt you saw some of this firsthand. It would be fascinated to hear what this feels like to you um, and what can be done about it. Thank you, Emma. Uh, I mean, I need to start off by saying uh, this is a really um, good piece of analysis and con congratulate Tom and Emma for producing it. Uh, I recognised it viscerally. I knew this was happening viscerally, but to see the figures, those raw figures on the page, is really quite something. Um, and and uh, Tom quoted me, uh, used my quote as, uh, of seeing the you know, the, someone in the same job, you know, the fourth, fifth person in that same job, and really uh, flailing to understand what they were trying to do, and clearly finding it quite difficult to advise me, uh, who had lived through a particular area over, over several years. Um, I think Bronwyn um, uh, made the point that 
the costs of this are understated. I mean, there's some figures here. Uh, uh, but I think the, the issue, there's some physical costs, but the real cost of this is in poor decision-making. Uh, and don't forget the government and these departments are responsible for far higher uh, uh, amounts of money than most companies. So um, we're really talking, I mean, I know DWP, if you add on all the bits that it's connected with, the tax credits and so on, we're looking at effectively uh, the, the spending of 250 billion pounds every year. And um, uh, the, so the costs of getting some of that wrong can just be absolutely enormous. The one thing about the, the civil service that you know, hits you straight away is that the people, many of the people, are of extraordinarily high quality. Um, but, and what's interesting is that the organization civil service does not seem to value them as individuals in the way that they would be valued in the private sector elsewhere. Um, in the private sector, you spend a huge amount of time thinking about what the strengths and weaknesses of, of particular people are and how to build a balanced team of them, both in temperamental terms and in terms of skills. And that doesn't happen, you know. We, we need a, a grade six in here, bang, oh, so-and-so is available, shove them in. Even though their skill base uh, is entirely, uh, you know, inadequate to replace that role. The, um, the costs of moving, I mean, my best analogy is, again, uh, the city. And I, I don't know if, uh, uh, there was one bank that was called the Lumber Room once. Uh, because it was offering two by twos or two by threes, by which it meant two million dollars for three years. And what that was about was the real costs and the time of the risk behind that uh, was such that people could not afford to move unless they had a guarantee for two or three years that they would keep their bonus. Because they knew they could not perform for that first two or three years because they didn't have um, uh, the, the, the things that they needed to perform that would take time to build. So they would have to learn um, um, the area they were going into, the culture of the organization they were going into. They would have to set up networks inside that organization and, they, and then again outside. Uh, and all of that takes as I say, you can see it in the hard cash, at least two years before that person could perform. Now, we've just heard the contrast, the civil service, you know, very few people last out the two years. Um, the best positive example I've ever experienced of showing what happens when someone in the civil service actually knows what they're doing uh, is Steve Robson, who came, this is some years ago now, he, he was in the treasury, he was in charge of the uh, the, the, the um, privatization, uh, the, uh, and in particular the BT privatization. And what he did, because he understood the area and he'd come back into it, he was able, because he had confidence of knowing his subject matter, he transformed uh, the, the capital markets right through the world by some of the innovations that he introduced. That's the positive story of when you get someone who really is on top of the game. And that's, so it's not just um, the cost of poor decision making, it's the huge opportunity cost of not having people doing these very uh, uh, dramatic things. I think the most frightening experience of my period was the treasury process, the negotiation between my particular department, DWP, and the treasury which became a, a desperate spreadsheet process um, based around static analysis of what would happen. And, and in my view, it was all complete nonsense. Uh, these, you know, if you squeeze a cut here, and we were looking at massive cuts through the period I was there, uh, you know, it would tend to bounce out somewhere else. You could squeeze mainstream benefits and, oh, surprise, surprise, your PIP demand is soaring. Uh, and that's what happens if you don't understand what's the real 
dynamic of things that are happening. But if you're turning over every 18 months, you've got no chance of understanding these quite complicated in, in, uh, interconnections. And so what you're looking at, I mean, if, if the example that I experienced with UWP is anything like, is the, a, a treasury grab for effective power, but a complete in, in, inability to wield it effectively. Um, I think to Tom kind of said, well, we could do this, that, and the other. I think reform is actually going to be very difficult. Um, the, and the reason is it's very difficult to measure people's performance. Uh, and it's incredibly time-consuming. I mean, in the, in the bank that I was in the city, uh, we spent the last three months of the year trying to assess who were performing and who were not. And the stakes were much larger there because the bonuses were so big. And uh, people became absolutely expert at claiming they were wonderful performers, you know, and you had to try and drive through that. And that's actually, I think, the real reason the civil service has gone through this much simpler and cleaner system, because actually it is very, very time-consuming and very, very difficult to work out who is your best performers. Um, there are three interconnected issues here to get right. Just, it's not just about the turnover. So I think... Um, the, the risk-reward ratio for civil servants is really bad. Uh, so, you, you know, the bonus, if you get a bonus, is, you know, 10% or something, which is a small amount of money if you compare it with the outside world. And there are actually very nasty repercussions for failure. So that is, uh, you know, a, a big driver of behavior. Uh, it's very difficult to get a free flow of outsiders into the civil service and back again, like they have in some countries, America, France, and so on. Um, uh, it's partly because of the pay scales, partly now because of the different pension uh, structures. So that, and, and I think that will be important to get an effective functioning civil service. Um, and then the other area that's notable in the civil service is they're very thin management structures. So you have your grade six and then the next grade and the next grade. So you have these very narrow pyramids uh, doing, uh, doing the work. Whereas in, in the private sector, you might mass a whole number of very senior executives if you needed weight. You might have eight of them all at the grade six level, you know, because you needed the mass of effort. And, and, and that's a big uh, uh, issue. Um, so, what to do, I mean, just picking up Tom's, what, what would I recommend out of Tom and Emma's work? I mean, I think the first thing you have to do is create, uh, uh, this is the earliest advice I got when I was trying to write a welfare report, is, you know, create a burning platform, David. So you have to create a burning platform, you know, you have to make this, uh, you know, a big thing. Um, I think the central recommendation is here is measurement is key. Uh, you know, if, if you set up a really efficient measurement system of what the turnover is, that starts to raise the profile and make it, if you know your problem, price it, you can do something about it. I think then you can kind of start thinking about some of the me me mechanics which are, you know, um, you're setting specific contract expectations for people when they take a job. You might say, you know, we expect you to do this for three years and actually change the norms a bit. Uh, you know, and say what the norms are and then start to, to work to them. Uh, and then I think maybe, uh, certainly in the period where you're trying to change culture back a bit, um, uh, give the department's ability to, to deny moves. That's what happens in the private sector. Actually have some, uh, you know, drop the free market thing and actually have some restrictions and all that. So congratulations, Tom and Emma, for a, a, a great piece of work. Lord Freud, thank you. Um, lots to pick up there in questions. Um, and I'm going to come to you now. You've been a Whitehall watcher for quite some time now. Um, hopefully you can give us a perspective on uh, whether this is a problem that you think is getting worse um, and indeed what can be done about it. Yeah, well, I, I, uh, like the others, I'd like to congratulate the IFG on, on uh, focusing on the, probably the least glamorous business in Whitehall, which is looking after the people who, who work in the civil service. Um, HR's never had a kind of sort of glamour reputation. Um, but it's revealed a, a really frightening dystopia where the only way to get a pay rise is to get a new job. And the more you move jobs, the more you're valued, it would appear. And a world where, and I think this is particularly worrying, where building expertise in a policy area is for the little people. It's a system that rewards people on the rise with the chance to rise furniture further and doesn't focus on the people working hard in the, in the lower rungs. So is Whitehall's workforce model broken? Um, I would say that on the evidence, the question 
answers itself. I think it's very brave of, of David to be here, um, and Gus, and, and, and indeed many of you who I know uh, are former uh, Whitehall officials. Um, I think all the best ex-ministers and ex-officials are often keen to pass on the lessons that they learn doing their jobs. But what's clear to me after um, a lifetime being interested in Whitehall is how bad Whitehall is, is learning the lessons as it goes along. Um, this is not the first report to highlight the problem of churn in the senior civil service. Uh, Tom referred fleetingly uh, to the White Review of the Treasury's management of the financial crisis, which discovered there were, uh, as well as the uh, Director Generals that you highlighted, there were three different teams in the lead on the response to the catastrophe at Northern Rock in the run-up to its nationalisation. One team leader went off to a new job after three months, another after six weeks. Uh, the White Review concluded that this is the level of turnover that troubles managers at call centres or trying to fill shifts in a McDonald's. This is not what should be happening at Whitehall. And the, and the striking thing about that report, or that review, which is now six years old, is that the turnover then was around 20%, and as we've just seen, it still is around 20%. This is not an organisation that learns readily from its mistakes. We have obviously, uh, those of us who are outside the civil service are very familiar with departments where ministers barely get a chance to place their regular coffee order before they're shuffled somewhere else. Five work and pension, work and pension secretaries since Ian Duncan Smith resigned only two years ago, uh, three years ago. Uh, we've had roughly a housing minister a year since 2010. We've had three Brexit secretaries, uh, two deputy prime ministers, and who knows how many prime ministers, but that's another story. Um, to find, uh, as this report does, that there is this echoing churn in the rate of movement of officials magnifies the damage really quite significantly. It seems to me it's exposed a hidden weakness in a service that often seems to live anyway in a state of tense and armed neutrality with its political masters. It used to be the permanence of the permanent government that was the problem. Um, my particular area of interest is the 60s and 70s, and the diaries of cabinet ministers and the Wilson governments of those years feature legendary characters like Dame Evelyn Sharp, who was in her 10th year as permanent secretary at housing when Richard Crossman took over to challenge her ideas about the government's role in building and my own uh, biographical subject was Barbara Castle, and she was typical of incoming ministers then and now in that she didn't trust the neutrality of her officials because it's very hard for leaders of political tribes ever to believe that there are clever people who don't actually belong to one tribe or the other. She also feared, as incoming politicians often do, the kind of small-c institutional conservatism of a big organisation. Uh, Castle was extraordinary. She relished taking on the whole of Whitehorse to establish the first independent Department of Overseas Development. She then, when she was moved to transport, wrangled semi-publicly uh, with her permanent secretary and ended up hardly on speaking terms with him after she had tried to get him quite publicly replaced as permanent secretary. The fact that he wasn't was seen as a triumph for the impartiality of officials. But she was also too good a minister not to come to value very highly the expertise she found in successive departments. And it's very interesting that when she was social services secretary 10 years on, she managed actually to introduce radical pensions reform in less than a year. And she did that by relying very heavily on the institutional memory, piecing together, as one of her advisors said, the pieces of previous attempts at pension reform that had crashed before they'd taken off. You can't do that if a third or even a fifth of your senior officials have actually only just arrived. You can't be surprised, as Tom's pointed out, by a homelessness crisis when the whole team responsible left after 2010. But I think there's something directly relevant to the churn question in this tension between ministers and officials. And, it, and one of the consequences of the churn is that officials maybe uh, find their confidence to challenge ministers undermined. 
and just as much of a given in incoming governments is the ambition to reimagine Whitehall, which usually means making it smaller and very often cheaper. Increasingly, one senses, it means making it more biddable too. But you can see this record of uh, appetite for reform from Fulton or in the 1960s to Heath Central Policy Review staff or Thatcher's efficiency audits and agentification to Tony Blair's deliberology. Politicians always think there must be a better way to do government than the one they inherited. And they almost always think that where they fail, it's blamed on implementation rather than policy design. I think in the end, this business of unpicking the connection between uh, uh, giddying rates of staff turnover and failures, uh, staff turnover and failures of policy design and implementation has to be more than an interesting study in how organizations work. It has to be the first step to doing it better. It has to be a way of not having another hostile environment policy that facilitates a Windrush scandal. It has to be not the botched attack on fake students or the failure to repatriate overstairs, and it has, to it has to inform the development of major new initiatives like universal credit. And in that context, I want to end quickly by revisiting the findings of an earlier inquiry into an epic administration failure, which Tom has mentioned because it is su such a milestone <laughs> in the history of failures, which was single farm payments, uh, which is 15 years ago now. It was a radical reform deriving from changes to the CAP, as Tom mentioned, um, which the nation's got significant autonomy in implementing in England, but not in uh, anywhere else in the UK. It was decided to merge, and this is where it gets interesting, 11 different payments into one single payment. It was described, and here's another familiar echo, as a dynamic hybrid that would reward certain behaviours, environmentally friendly farming practices, and uh, give farmers stronger marketing, uh, market incentives. Well, it didn't go well. And after a year when millions of farmers couldn't get the subsidies on which they relied, for better or worse, it, uh, there was an NAO investigation. It found that the system, uh, it concluded the following, the scale of the work had been underestimated, that the system itself was overly complex, management information was lacking, and it was dogged by over-optimistic reporting. And you have to wonder, did anyone up the road at the DWP 10 years later know about this as they began to design universal credit? Or had they all left Whitehall for something better paid with more agreeable working conditions and higher prospects? Um, thank you. Um, very prescient. Gus, I'm going to come to you now. Um, you spent a career in the civil service, uh, a former cabinet secretary, so perhaps you can give us the civil service take on this level of turnover. Um, what are the reasons for it, and why is it proving so difficult to sure. tackle? Sure, and, and I'll give a personal view. I don't think I can, as an ex, talk for the civil service. I think that'd be inappropriate. And also, you mentioned that specialists can never get through to the top, and there's always a career limit. So. <laughs> I spent nearly all of my time in government as a specialist, so let's be clear about this. The one exception. The one exception. Maybe, maybe. Um, and it's really good. I think this, this report will start an important debate. Let's just get the numbers in context. So there's some numbers you've got which are, uh, are big about costs of turnover because of the possible implications, for example, on productivity. Let's think about the last two years and what we've been spending all of our time on in government. It's Brexit. What are the really important things for sorting out productivity of both the public and private sectors? How much time have we spent on them? So there's a vast cost, which we should really worry about. This is an important cost we should worry about as well, but we need to get it in context. Second, and, and the second point is, of course, when it comes to looking at the figures and the way you do, you've got this what I call the abomination of Dexu. How do we manage that? Because people have moved from other departments to Dexu. Well, is that good or bad? I mean, you know, if, if I'd been Cabinet Secretary uh, living through this, I would have made sure that Dexu was a part of the Cabinet Office. It needs to report to the Prime Minister. It should never have been a separate department. Big mistake. And, you know, that's life. Third point I'd like to make is, um, and hinted about this, and we have, again, the exception that proves the rule here. 
civil servants and ministers need to work together for effective policy. Um, oh, bless when you have a minister that understands the subject that stays in post for a long time. We have one here. We have Steve Webb when you talk about Lib Dems. You know. But we did have nine ministers for pensions in five years that Lee Lewis, who was around for a long time, had to live with. So if you want to call the perm sec before a select committee to talk about turnover, can we call the prime minister before the same select committee to talk about ministerial turnover? Because you just, and also it is far worse there because the chances of a minister knowing anything about the subject are really quite low. And in that context, I think we should perhaps spare a thought. When you did the Brexit stuff last night, you may have noticed they went to the Scottish government and the Welsh government. What was missing? The Northern Ireland government. There is no Northern Ireland government. Two years, and I hope that the Institute will look at this, two years, I was out there saying, well, no ministers. Is this paradise or paralysis? Right? Really interesting case of what's going on there. But it, it does mean that the Northern Ireland voice is now represented by DUP rather than Northern Ireland devolved government. And that's, I think, an important point. So civil service ministers. Expertise, you would expect me to say, this is, quote, one of those people who we've had enough of, um, is incredibly important. And I think this is where expertise in policy, when I think about my own career, uh, would I have been better off only staying in one department, which would have done well in your figures? No, absolutely not. The fact that I was in Treasury, the fact that I got overseas in the Foreign Office, the fact that I worked in Cabinet Office, uh, I think was hugely important. The fact that I managed a bit of time outside as well was hugely important. Um, what I think we should be measuring here, and this is where I, I, if you look at your turnover figures, if you could get that chart up, this is where I think the fast stream's got it really badly wrong. We're moving, we were moving people around every six minutes, courtesy of a really bad change, I think. I hope we're going to move back from that. Where you think of a policy person, what do you want someone that's going to be really good at DWP policy? You actually want them to have spent some time in Treasury as well. You talked about the importance of Treasury. You also want some in Treasury to know about DWP. So do we want people that only spend their lives in one department? Absolutely not. Do I want them to have, as our, God bless it, Farstream is doing, send them all over the place? No. I want clusters. I want someone that really cares about the economy and business to spend their time in a Treasury and bays and places like that. Uh, I want someone that cares about health to spend some time in social care and places that are doing that and to understand a, a kind of cluster of things. So yes, do I want them, as I've known someone really interested in inter international relations, wanted to do home office, MOD, foreign office, to be sent to the Ministry of Justice? No. I mean, this is bonkers, right? You're absolutely right about the incentive structure. So we could do something with pay where you can accelerate the pay. I think that's a very good thing. Um, uh, and I, I would definitely do that. But I think the other thing we need to look at here is, so your number about outside was 12 to 14? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you look at the 12 to 14 and say people above that are bad, um, Cabinet Office, well, the model for Cabinet Office is we take people in from other departments and we, we use them. So that's always been the model. I think it's quite a good model, actually. I think Cabinet Office, when I look at the Civil Contingency Secretariat, I look at all the stuff we do on national security, I think that works well. I would not say there's anything wrong with Cabinet Office. MHCLG, I get really worried by that number. Treasury, we understand why Treasury gets its number because having left the civil service, I now get paid shed loads more for doing a lot less, right? I mean, and I could have done that at any time in my career from Treasury. That's really scary. Um, DIT, well, it's new, Dexu's new. But look at someone down the other end. You know, so if low turnover is really going to give you great departments, well, DWP, MOD, HO, DFID, these are fantastic. I mean, the one thing I want of DFID, they join DFID and they stay there forever. I mean, God, you know, that creates a very strong culture in DFID, which has its advantages, but also has its disadvantages. Um, so I would like there to be a cluster approach more than that. Uh, when I look at the remuneration stuff, uh, one of the things I do is chair the Public Interest Board of PwC. Because of their background, they're very like the civil service, so we go through very similar processes, but the difference being at the end, there's a huge pot of money. We go through these processes and then there's a bag of peanuts, let's be honest. Um, so 
We do need to think about how we structure these things. There is fundamentally an issue about pay. Having now worked a long time in the private sector, there's not an issue of quality. The best people in the civil service are totally on a par with the best people in the private sector. Don't let anyone tell you differently from that. And I can now, from people that have experienced that, uh, I think that's true. So that is a big issue. Uh, if people in the civil service realise quite how marketable they were, it would be a problem. So that turnover number would go up, I tell you. Um, so I'm, just keep it quiet. Could you just, don't go too far. Um, some of the things, and refer back to the 60s and 70s, the golden era, well, actually, come on, you know. Uh, government wasn't great, and the, the outcomes weren't that brilliant. Um, I'm not going to touch on some things I was very tempted to go into at a personal level, but I won't. Just the financial crisis, let's look at that. So, Treasury, high turnover, it's just terrible. Bank of England, really low turnover. Uh, the financial authorities, really low turnover. Um, who do we blame for this? Do we say, ah, oh, Treasury was terrible, or, and, but the bank and the FCA were brilliant, they were there, they were ahead of us because they had low turnover, they had lots of experts. Unfortunately, that's not true. So, was it the low turnover thing that was the issue, or, or did we all, including the IMF, which has a very low turnover, which was saying all these derivative products are really good because they diversify risk, uh, was there a problem that's rather different from the turnover issue? Um, so I'd, I'd kind of challenge that point as well. Uh, final thing from me, where I, I see this real problem are some of the operational areas where we have your, your bit about SROs and all the rest of it. That to me is really important and that is kind of where I would really like to get more continuity for someone to see a project through. I think universal credit is a classic example, farm payments exactly. How can we incentivize people to stay with these things through what are uh, generally regarded as, as jobs that, you know, somehow I think people, particularly the kind of far streamers, join the civil service to do policy. I, I, I regret that and I think we are changing things and I, all my successes I think have moved in that direction. We've all tried to get more status for operational stuff. We need to think about that. But if you think about the skill set, the civil service is never, ever going to compete with the private sector. It'll be that commercial skill set. Because basically, when you're into commercial stuff, you're talking about getting the best deal. In those areas, you are very visible to the private sector. Uh, you are going to be, if you're good, you're going to be tempted away. I think it's really hard for the civil service to keep the expertise in those sorts of areas. So this is not a, this is kind of basic economics explains nearly all of these things, I'd say, as to why we can't get people in the right places. And, we, and so you'd expect civil service to be you know, pretty good on policy and relatively poor on operations, and I think that's what we've got. So we do need to find some ways. You mentioned Australia and New Zealand, and I'm part of a view of the Australian uh, public service. We do need to remember there are some things we've got that are absolutely brilliant compared to them. Uh, in Australia, you're a permanent secretary, the minister can sack you and not give you any reason. Just, I don't like you. And as a result, they've got some perm sex, <laughs> one in particular, who said, I'm not really interested in this Wednesday morning meeting stuff. Um, I'm just going to do my bit. I'm not interested in going cross-departmentally. And yes, of course, if there's a change of administration, which is expected next May, he'll be booted out. We'll get another political appointment. Right, so never underestimate the value of having an impartial permanent civil service. We risk that if we uh, allow certain things to happen. And I think uh, where we should learn is from people that have gone outside, again, the value of turnover, and worked in the Australian and New Zealand civil services. And we have a number of them about to come back, like Mr. Kisak and uh, his wife, uh, who will give us really valuable information and be able to do those comparisons because they've worked at the heart of both as to what we should learn from these other places and what we should. Is it from me? Yeah. Brilliant. Gus, thank you um, for a kind of challenging um, you know, defence of some aspects of turnover in the civil service. I feel duty bound to say that you highlighted uh, some of the departments that have low turnover on this graph, like the Home Office and DWP, and said, well, what does that tell us? I think we went to the next slide um, on turnover amongst the senior civil service. Those departments don't fare quite so well on the figures. 
um, DWP, Home Office are both looking pretty high. So I suppose it depends which way you cut it. Sure. Um, look, we're, um, we've only got 15 minutes left. Uh, so rather than have lots of discussion now um, amongst the panel, I want to go out to the audience. I'm sure there are going to be lots of questions. I'm going to take questions in threes. Um, for people who are next door, uh, we're going to use the old-fashioned way of sticking your head around the door and if you have a question <laughs> to ask. So who wants to go first? Uh, yeah, I'm going to come here. Uh, yeah, at the back over here. Uh, Richard Johnson from Civil Service World. I just wanted to follow up on a point that uh, Lord Freud made about the possibility of departments limiting moves. Just how would you, you mentioned in the private sector that would be what happens, but how would that work in practice? Because surely if you limited moves in the private sector, people would just leave, and wouldn't that happen in the civil service too? And just to ask the rest of the panel whether they think there's any credit in that idea, it seems like quite a blunt instrument, but should departments just be denying civil servants moves? Okay, thank you. And then just over here, yeah. sorry. Um, Mark Swindles, a very proud ex-civil servant and should declare have benefited personally from gaming these moves or, or moving frequently just um, to gain experience across departments. Um, it's a quite a granular observation. I wonder, specifically for Tom, but the panel, it struck me that the gateway to a lot of these moves is the competency framework. So the actual, assuming it's not a stitch-up, your move between jobs happens via a, 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 a generalised competency game. You can, you, can, you can learn it. And there's very little by way of specific experience to the role that's really built into that process. Just, just wondering if you had any observations on that. Thank you. And then just one more bit. Robin Butler, former head of the civil service. Uh, I'd just like to add one further factor which uh, I think has contributed to this, and that is uh, the um, tradition of competition. I mean, we've had fair and open competition in the civil service, and that runs very deep. But since there has been internal competition for jobs, uh, it's really gone mad because uh, every job that becomes uh, open uh, there's a field for it that uh, takes time, but it means that management has become impotent. Uh, it's, uh, you know, Gus was talking about getting clusters. Uh, management has lost the ability to do that, and um, the system has become anarchic. And so really, I think that management has got to be empowered to uh, have more powers to, uh, and I like a thing in this, to ban people from moving even applying for jobs too often, because if they apply, the best person's chosen, but management loses its control completely on producing people and teams fit for the job. Okay, thank you. So um, I'm going to stop there for now. Should we um, deny moves, uh, competency frameworks, and has management lost the ability to control the workforce? Um, David, come to you first. Yeah, I mean, I think what it really, I mean, all these three questions are doing, it's really talking about the same thing, that, 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 that we should look at some somewhat more active career management. You know, we actually need a process where you're looking at people and moving them around. I mean, you, you do need people to move. I mean, I think one of the things that's very clear from the outside is up to about the age of 35, say, you want people to move around a lot and get a lot of experience and general, uh, you know, um, growth. After that, it becomes very expensive to the organizations to let them move because you've got them, they've got all this expertise, and that is of huge value. If you start to go out of the civil service and look at what the real values would be in the private sector, Gus is, is luxuriating now, uh, in, in, in that, the real values are very high. And just because uh, it's not, it, I mean, they're not understood or paid in the civil service, they're nevertheless absolutely there. So I think you can, you know, a turnover, just a turnover statistic is a blunt instrument as you have to be much more subtle. But I think if you had more career management, you, you did actually control the, the internal market, as Robin said. And, and, you know, yes, Richard, I mean, you know, we are talking here about some constraints on that free market and the ability for departments to say, look, you're too valuable in this role. We just cannot afford to let you go. Uh, you agreed when you came here that you would do this job for three and a half, four years or whatever. You're right in the middle of that. It's absolutely vital that you finish it. It's too expensive to let you go. No, sorry, you cannot go. And if the person throws a wobbly and says, well, sod you, then I'm off to the private sector, so be it. But most people actually won't if 
the norms have started to move in that direction. Great. Thank you, Gus. Um, I very much share the thought behind all of those three questions that, um, as Robin said, that there is a problem with a completely open system. And I, I agree with you that we need to think about how we move away from that. But I would like there to be a stronger role for management in pursuing my idea of clusters. And I think that's in the individual's interest. Therefore, I think it would work in the same way, that we try and enhance their, their skills, which are based on a competency set, real experience, as you say, in an area. So if you're a real specialist in social policy, then you know, why, would, why would we let you go off to uh, do something completely different? We, we would long, like you, and, and you're right to pick me up on the senior civil service. I think that's where it starts to, uh, you know, you do want, as you said, move around early on and then start concentrating on your core and keep people within that core. And uh, for quite a number of jobs, I, I would be quite uh, hard. You know, universal credit, rural payments agency, things like that, I'd say, you know, here's your contract for this number of years, and there's a big bonus at the end of it. Uh, you know, we don't do that. We, um, I think we need to give strong financial incentives for people to stay and, and live through these things. And uh, these are really difficult areas. Um, and I'd like to find some way to get an incentive for the minister to stay as well for a big operational issue. You know, could we, could, could I, I mean, when David Cameron asked me when I first met him before the 2010 election, uh, and he gave me, you know, all the things he wanted to do on coming in when he was in opposition, um, I guess they're doing that now, maybe, uh, uh, if the vote goes a certain way tonight. Um, he, he said to me, what, would, what could I give him? And I said, low turnover of ministers, please. Uh, keep them in post longer so they get more expertise on the subject so we can develop a better team. And I think that's, that, together, that's really important. That's very funny because I, I had that conversation with him. Yeah. You know what? I said, you've got to uh, you know, let ministers stay, you know, because at the moment they're moving, this is under the Bergam, they're moving before they even found yeah. out where the toilet is. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, I remember, you know, I, I think I got lumber for that reason, you know, born for your staying there forever. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I think if a prime minister gets it uh, and, and keeps, uh, you don't have to be all ministers, but enough ministers uh, who are running difficult areas to stay, and then if, if, if the civil service can match that up, and I think. In practice, we try and do too much in this country. We just don't have enough people to do 140 separate projects. We, you know, we, there has to be some discipline, which I think the Cabinet Office should be responsible for, to say we cannot do 140 projects. You know, we need to narrow that down because the numbers of people we have allow us to do a, you know, a 50 or whatever. Well, thank goodness an important project that's as important as deck shoes had the same... Oh, no, they haven't. <laughs> Can, can, I, can I just pick up one, one point, <coughs> talking to people at the start of their careers, this business of open competition is really, distressing is the wrong word, but it really makes people feel rudderless and, and unmanaged, and that can't be good either. So, I absolutely agree, it's a problem. We spoke to permanent secretaries and ministers who had their key deputy director working on a project or a policy leave in the midway through that. And the first, thing, the first time they found out about it was another department just informing them that they'd been poached. That's clearly um, not a good system. I'm going to slightly depart from the panel in saying I think if you are to start blocking those kind of moves, actually there's no point in doing that until you fix some of the other things. So the reason people move is they can get a 10% pay rise in another department. That's what managers currently can't offer them to stay in their department. If you stop them from moving, but they could, you know, but don't give them any pay rise, you're just going to end up with an unhappy workforce. So actually, they, they, you need to fix the wider system around it and not just stop people from moving. Brilliant. Okay, another round of questions. Um, Tony? Uh, I'm Tony Travers from the London School of Economics. I mean, a lot's been made now, rightly, of the fact that it isn't only the big turnover within the civil service that is important, but also amongst ministers. But to those two points, you can add the willingness 
uh, also to reconfigure departments regularly, which the IFG has looked at. So in a sense, you can go on hanging things on this rather uh, late present Christmas tree. And within that last observation about the reconfiguration of departments, given the high turnover at MHCLG, it, I've roughly counted, has had seven or eight versions of itself since uh, 1970, when the old Ministry of Housing and Local Government disappeared. It's been cut by, what, 30, 40, 50 percent since 2010. The implication of all of that is that that department and what it does doesn't matter very much to government. And therefore, one has to infer that across the board, issues such as continuity, I'm afraid, and um, institutional memory are not prized. And indeed, the fact that this research, with due respect to all in the room, has been done by outsiders rather than within the civil service itself to find this out, suggests that a number of things are not prized in government, politically and within the civil service, which perhaps ought to be. And therefore, this report you know, is a useful uh, call to arms. Um, consultant Director Reform. Uh, Lord O'Donnell welcomed this as a as starting a very important debate uh, on these issues. Um, I've been fortunate enough to uh, write through reports um, covering these issues, though none as powerful as this. And indeed, um, Lord O'Donnell, um, uh, two of those were when you were Cabinet Secretary, and you commented at the time on the importance of addressing churn and these issues. Yet, here we are talking about them now. And the clusters point, which is a very important point, uh, as you know, was one raised by Fulton uh, 50 years ago. And Whitehall said in the 1970s that it had implemented Fulton. Uh, yet here we are talking about clusters as if it's potentially a new idea and something that is uh, well worth uh, thinking about doing. Indeed, it is. Um, but uh, given that 50 years on from when this debate started, we are still here talking about it as if it is something to start thinking about. Who has responsibility within the civil service to sort this out and who has the power to do it? Thank you. Thank you. And then just here in the front. I'm not sure if it's a question or an observation, but um, from a personal point of view, from someone who um, actually worked on universal credit for seven years as a lawyer and was this, this turnover of um, policy people that uh, Lord Freud's talking about, I didn't necessarily find it a bad thing. And, and I worry a little bit about this idea of uh, rewarding people for expertise because sometimes I, I found the experts were actually the hardest people to work for because or work with because they get quite sort of fixed in their ways and, and ways of doing things. So I actually personally find that kind of, um, that there's about enough movement really in, in my own area. Um, you've got a, a level of expertise plus uh, a level of movement which kind of keeps us sort of a balance, I think. Um, so yeah, I would worry a little bit about rewarding people too much for expertise. Thank you. Okay, so one comment on, um, you know, should we really be rewarding people um, for expertise or are the levels about right? Um, a question around um, reconfiguration, stability, institutional memory. Do these things actually matter um, to government given they continue uh, wasting them? And why are we still here? Um, we've been talking about turnover for 50 years. Um, who is actually responsible for gripping um, this issue and who has the power to do something about it? And um, that's a good question to end on. Um, and I'm going to come to you first. Well, I, I, I only want to say one very short thing because this is, a, you want to hear from Gus and, and Lefroy, but as a, a biographer, uh, one of the ways that this lack of institutional respect for institutional memory is, is shown is by the increasing failure to archive papers properly um, and the, um, the, the way in which uh, uh, the process of decision-making is, no, is, is increasingly less often reflected in the papers that are archived, and um, I think that merely reflects a, a wider problem. Thank you. David? I mean, Universal Credit was very interesting because it was a blend of policy and operations, uh, which is uh, and, and quite unusually in that way. And 
One of the things that I uh, was most shocked about when I went into the department, interesting, uh, that was in, 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 under the Labour, when I first had my experience there, was how uh, operations were uh, looked at as a lesser species um, than policy, let alone the ministers. And I, I spent a lot of time trying to uh, change that gap. So the operations became much more important. Uh, and what they were finding on the ground you know, was fed back in so that you got that virtuous loop. And actually, I think you know, if you could, you know, the fact that universal credit is in, is working, uh, I think is actually partly because of, uh, or very substantially because of that, we actually got this very powerful loop uh, working. And it was interesting to see the continuity of the operational people was far greater than of the policy people. Um, and I developed, and this is my kind of um, um, uh, how do you handle the civil service as, as it is, the only way I found to, to actually get good decision making was to get the eight people in the room who had the specific expertise, the operationals guy, the legal guy, the or lady, uh, the um, um, operations, the IT builder and everyone in, and then just go through a bit of like a Socratic dialogue, right, we want to do this. Does that work legally? Yes. Can we do it? Does it clash in the IT sense? And you'd kind of, because nobody in that room and nobody in the organization had enough knowledge to come to a decision. Nobody. Uh, and the only way you could kind of build a really good decision is to have this very open uh, uh, meeting where you just kind of started to build using all this different expertise. And I actually uh, would commend this as, uh, for anyone trying to get good decision making, uh, as the way maybe you could bring in some outsiders, but trying to do that Socratic method uh, of trying to reach decisions in the knowledge that you just don't have enough knowledge in any one place is, is, is I think, one of my main, um, my main findings out of the system. I mean, you took part in quite a few of those. I mean, one of the things that's interesting that politicians can be pretty horrible to civil servants and uh, civil servants can be quite frightened of just thinking out loud. Uh, uh, I mean, you, you wouldn't do it in front of Ian, uh, Ian Duncan Smith, for instance. Um, and uh, because politicians have got this funny idea about civil servants in the Barbara Castle idea that they're in opposition and they've got their own entrenched views, I never found that. I found that you know, they were desperately keen to help and do something, but it was a question of the politicians understanding how to get that system to work and, you know, and getting people to think and, and, and think openly uh, um, without feeling they were going to be yelled at um, uh, for what they were saying. Thank you, David. Gus. <laughs> we need to clone David and put him in every department. Um, the point that, that Tony made about uh, machinery of government change is absolutely right. I mean, God, you know, again, the conversation with David Cameron, very clear, please don't do machinery of government changes. Uh, they just disrupt things for a long time. Um, absolutely, last resort, go down that route. Um, secondly, the, your point about um, getting the teams together, Socratic method and all the rest of it, I think we need to take that one stage further. You've got lots of different officials and ministers I want ministers and officials, like National Security Council style idea, whereas we've got lots of cabinet committees with ministers all sitting around with a, an official behind them. I mean, just, just so wrong, right? And so many things, and this goes back to the point that was made about why haven't we changed? It's a really good point. Quite often you've got ministers interfering in uh, running of the civil service, which has been quite negative, I'd say. Um, why haven't, you know, I, I take this very personally, why, why some of the things I can now see very bluntly didn't I do? Uh, and the answer is you are trying to do so much. And at the time, it's the same reason why you don't want to do machinery of government changes. You don't want to be forever changing the system. You want to leave the system some time to carry on as it is, to be getting on with the agenda, which is just huge and possibly too big. Um, but that's a partial excuse. I, accept the fact that we need to think about and learn from why we haven't managed to do the changes that actually a lot of us all agree are the right ones. Thank you. Tom, I'm going to give you the final so, word. Why, why are we still here? Just quickly, I think there's been a, a sort of lack of, lack of uh, 
recognition of the scale of the problem. So Whitehall hasn't actually had this data available before or indeed data on actually what this is uh, costing. Um, and I, I, I think that's been a problem. Um, but I think there's also been a lack of willingness to tackle it. Um, so, and I would slightly differ from Gusso, I think the civil service is in some ways quite good at not reforming itself. You have a, a sort of group of senior officials who have come up in a certain way, most are generalists who have moved around quite quickly, and actually it's quite difficult for that group to start changing the way that the civil service works. So I think, you, I actually think we do need political interest in this. We need ministers who are interested in working with the civil service to, to reform the system. Um, I also, I, I think that actually there's been a lack of sort of capacity to drive change in departments. So if you think about HR, and we, we make a big point of this in our report, it's simply not been strong enough in departments to work out where you need skills, people, expertise, and actually put the reforms in place to do that. It's too often been treated uh, as, as something to be uh, so forgotten about. And, and just on Greg's question, who should be responsible for driving this change? I think there's some argument that the centre of government, the cabinet secretary, the chief people officer uh, can have a role. But actually, I think it has to be permanent secretaries. I think permanent secretaries have to take uh, accountability for managing the people in their department much better. Um, I think if you look at the private sector, a CEO will tell you, you know, I have uh, my finance director, my HR director, my numbers and my people, and they're the two people who are closest to me in the department, in, in the organisation. Uh, I think Whitehall needs to do something similar. Departments and permanent secretaries need to be responsible for this. Okay, thank you, Tom. Uh, I think that um, draws us to a close. I want to end just by echoing the point that Bronwyn made at the beginning. This topic really matters to the Institute. We think when you're seeing multiple departments have turnover of 25% of, of its workforce every year, four in ten senior officials and being in post for less than a year, that is a problem for Whitehall. It's a problem for its institutional memory. It's a problem for its ability to deliver major projects. So this is something we will be coming back to again and again. Thank you to the panel for a fascinating discussion and thank you all for coming along this morning. Thanks.